There was a perceptible difference that was noticeably larger. Um, so I think, I think what I thought, I don't know what I thought because you can't really think about what you're actually thinking. Um, but I think what I thought was um, if you took and passed the quiz and you're taking the course for credit, two people took and passed the quiz who aren't. Go figure. They can, they can, they can, maybe they can auction off their quiz grades um, to those. Yeah. I have money. If you took and passed the quiz, uh, this is actually um, a good lesson for life. I think what it means is that we will read your, um, we will not read your essays as uncharitably as we might. Um, it is simply a fact of life that there is no such thing as a purely objective reading of anything, really. Um, thing. Unless you're a computer. That would be a Turing test sort of question, mm -hmm. or not. Um, and so if you took and passed the quiz, especially if you had really wonderful and witty answers, but just if you passed, if you like read Macbeth, um, which would be a good thing for you to have done, um, then... When we read your papers, what we're going to think to ourselves is, oh, look, that person read Macbeth. They're into this. That's great. Huh, this really obscure sentence. Actually, maybe it makes a kind of sense. <laughs> Sorry? Are your papers on? No, 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 no. This would be based on your quizzes. When do we get the paper topic? Uh, um, no. Wednesday. Maybe. <laughs> on Monday we get it. Yeah, all right, Wednesday's fair. Wednesday's fair. Yeah, I know. Time time is time is rushing by. Okay, which means we have to finish Kant. What? So it goes. We have to finish Kant. You you have to figure out you love Kant. Good. Um we have to figure out how to prove um, that there's more than one order of infinity. We, we may even go so far as to prove that there are an infinite number of orders of infinity. But that you won't need to know for your final. But how to prove that there's more than one order, you will need to know for your final. Um, take home. Take home. I think it says on the syllabus. No, it doesn't. Um, okay. Well, I will. Um, when do you want it due? You guys can decide. Before the 18th. I want it to go away. It's, look, this is, we're going to go over this a couple of times in class. It's two, it, look, you have two hours to do this. So just when do you guys all think you'll have a two-hour window to just sit down and prove these two things? It is take-home, but you should... The instructions will be take to sit down when you have two hours and prove these two things. You already know what the two things are, right? It took like five seconds for the first thing. It took five seconds? Okay, you don't need two hours then. I mean, I would think you could do it in half an hour. I don't think you can do it in five seconds, but I, I would think you could do it in half an hour. Half an hour. You don't think so? To write it out so that my mother will understand it, yeah. Oh, how good is your mother at math? What? How good is your mother at math? Not so. Oh, dear. But she's, look, she's a really good lawyer. She thinks logically. She, follow, she, she follows... Um, she follows logical arguments. Yeah. Yeah, but not from notes. Not from notes. The point is. The point is to internalize it. Where was 
Yeah, yeah, but just imagine that you're trying to explain this to someone who doesn't get it. Say that again. Yeah, explain. The idea is, no, look, you're not doing a mathematical proof. I mean, you are. But the idea is to explain this to someone who doesn't really know math. So, like, here's this, there, there's certain amazing discoveries that human beings have made. One is the discovery of irrational numbers, or at least the discovery that there is no rational way to describe the square root of two. That if you try to put it in some way that seems to make sense before you start thinking about it, it turns out you get to a place which makes no sense. So that's like a huge human achievement to find that out. Um, and so if you just turn it into a proof, thus we see, um, then you have neglected to show what makes it a human achievement. So what you want to do, it's the kind of thing that you want to explain it to someone who doesn't like math. And what you want to say is, look, you may not like math, but this is actually really cool. Okay? That would be the, um, your assignment. If you don't think it's really cool, then you have to fake it. Um, that would be the acting part of this class, or the um, learning how to how to write with um, conviction, even if you're not convinced. That way, you can become a politician. Um, but the idea is to um, make interesting this really interesting fact, rather than simply to um, give a dry exposition showing that that's what it is. So there are two really interesting things you're going to show. One is that the square root of two is irrational, and the other is that there's more than one order of infinity. You're not going to do it from notes, um, but what you're going to do is internalize it sufficiently that you can reproduce it yourself, um, so that you can sit down and do it without notes the way you would in class. Would you prefer it as an in-class final? No. no. Yes. No. 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 If I shout louder, <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like there are about as many yeses as noes. Um, just about as many yeses as noes. Possibly one or two more noes than yeses. So okay, it'll be a take-home final. That's what you will do. If you sit down and start doing it, and you find you can't do it, you can stop. And I think I'm going to say you can stop and refigure it out. This is obviously you're on your honor here not to cheat, um, so don't cheat, but really learn it. Um, really learn um, how to do it. Really learn the meaning of these things. Why you ask. Well, you don't ask, but I'm going to pretend you ask. Why you ask. Um, look, one of the things that we have been seeing in one way or another is that a whole lot of the history of math and a whole lot really of the history of knowledge or of ideas has been giving names to problems. Um, so that here is this thing that the Pythagoreans found, which is that there was no way to express the ratio of the hypotenuse of an isosceles right triangle to the side. Um, no way that you could put that ratio in numbers. Numbers were everything to the Pythagoreans. Um, they were the ones who discovered, for example, and this seemed like an amazingly important discovery, and it should be an amazingly important discovery, um, they were the ones who discovered that what an octave means um, physically is, do people know? Um, if you have a guitar string, what are, the, what are the high and low strings, the two E's, is that what it is? Um, 
So to get the high E on the lowest string, the top string of a guitar, do you know where you have to fret it? No, I don't. Does anyone? Yeah, but do you know what you're doing to the string to get the same note from, um, from a string that's an octave lower? Yeah, you're doubling it. You're cutting it exactly in half. Yeah, so what an octave is, if you have something at the same tension, a string at the same tension, um, then what an octave is, to go up an octave, is to go exactly half of um, an octave lower. So every time you go up, to an go up an octave, you're cutting the string in half. Each, um, the reason that a harp or a piano has the beautiful shape that it does is that there's a mathematical relation um, between string and string, and that relation is extremely elegant. Um, that relation is extremely simple. Do people know what um, equal temperament is? Is this a phrase? Can you explain it, Kenny? Um, what it means is, is that um, there's a, is that essentially you're, you're, if, if you, if you know that every octave you have, um, you have the doubling in, in frequency. As you, as you go up in an, an octave, you double in frequency. But so what equal temperament does is it draws the line in between the octaves so that there's just a smooth mathematical description of the value of all the notes in between the octaves. In fact, it's a linear one. Right. Um, whereas, um, well, so linear in, in I think each um, half step is a, is the um, twelfth root of the is the previous half step um, uh, plus a twelfth root of that half step, so that you then get. I think that's what it is. Which wouldn't be linear because you have to. Have no. It, but it's 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 linear. The log would be linear, it's, right? Yeah. 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 There are two notes uh, that don't have a half step between them. I forget which one. No, they have ha whole notes have half steps between them. They're two notes that that don't have a sharp or a flat between them. Yeah. That's what but they're still half steps. I mean, an octave is just twelve half steps. Yeah. In fact, that we All call right. some of them the black keys and some of them the white keys is arbitrary for our musical system. Yeah. So if you've ever heard of Bach's well-tempered clavier, if that's a name that you've heard, well-tempering is actually not the same thing as equal tempering, but it's also not the natural relation of notes to each other. Um, if you were to do a, if you were to play a piano that had the natural relation of notes to each other, um, you could only play in one key. So the idea of equal temperament is a compromise. But at any rate, what the Pythagoreans found was that there was something that sounded really sweet to the ear. Um, and the first thing that was interesting is the synesthetic idea that something sounds sweet to the ear. But something sounded really sweet to the ear. And then it also turned out that the ear was hearing math, that you were hearing something that was measurable in space. So for them, this meant, and quantum theory still thinks this, this meant that um, the integers um, gave you something like all of reality. And so it was like, wow, integers, they're so cool. Odd and even, that's so cool. Um, two is really interesting because an octave um, is the doubling or the halving of a spatial interval. That's really amazing. Um, so they found this incredible thing, and then they started thinking about integers, and then they found, but, oh, my God, 2 doesn't work because it doesn't have a square root, and they couldn't put it into integers. So they thought they'd found the abstract mental building blocks of the universe. And then as soon as they started, and, and they were so elegant, and they worked so well, 
And then as soon as they started trying to, trying to work this out, what they found was it didn't work at all. And there was this new kind of thing which was totally irrational, so they freaked out. And then someone came along and said, why not just name it instead of freaking out and say, oh my god, this number, it's irrational, it makes no sense. Say, okay, we'll call it the irrational number. And, oh, okay, that's fine. Um, then there was huge debate in the history of math over whether negative numbers existed. Um, what does a number below zero mean? How can there be a negative number? So huge debate in mathematics over whether there were such things as negative numbers. And you see that one of the problems that come, we talked about this like the first or second day of class, I think. One of the problems that comes up with negative numbers, one of the problems that come up with negative numbers, um, is the question of the ordering of numbers. That is, smaller number times smaller number equals smaller number, or gives you a product that is less than a larger number times a larger number, except you get to the negatives and suddenly that's not true anymore. So where did the negative numbers, what's their relation to positive numbers? Are they smaller or not? They seem like they should be smaller. Does smaller and less than are those synonymous terms? Um, but finally someone said, look, let's just say they're these negative numbers and um, see if we hit any problems, and they don't. Then, for various reasons, people start wondering about the square roots of negative numbers. One reason being that you should have as many roots as the highest degree in an equation, um, but some of those are going to be, you know, if you ask what the cube root of 8 is, you're going to be involved with the square roots of negative numbers. Or if you ask what the, what the um, square root of negative 1 is, you're going to be involved with square roots of negative numbers. So people say, well, there is no such thing. Um, they're totally imaginary. They're not real. So someone else says, oh, cool. That's what we'll call them, imaginary numbers. Um, huge debate about whether imaginary numbers existed or not. The answer is they don't exist. They're imaginary. They're not real. And yet, the universe seems to need them because there are lots of equations about things that actually happen physically in the real universe. Um, in... Um, in um, electrodynamics, for example, where you can't figure out what's going to happen without using imaginary numbers, where, where you can't figure out how certain circuits work without being able to use imaginary numbers. So does the universe use imaginary numbers to figure out what to do? No one knows. What? Well, it becomes a real issue, which is, um, again, I hope this is somewhat vivid for you. It's a Kantian question also. But there is a question, why does the universe follow the laws of math? Now, if you're saying, why is it? I know you can toss your curls about that. Um, but one of the questions um, you could say is, well, why does it follow the laws of math? Because if there are nine planets, there are nine planets. That's what we were taught when I was a kid. How many planets do you think there are? Eight. Eight. Is that what you were taught? No. Yeah. I grew up in a time when there were. There are a lot more planets than that anyway. Yeah, back in the 19th century, they got up to the 30s. Did you know that? Towards the end of the 19th century, they were saying there were like 34 planets. And then they started saying, well, wait a second. Actually, it turns out there are hundreds and even thousands. Of that's when the size cutoff started. Yeah, so that's when the size cutoff started. But for a while, I mean, just think how terrible to go to school in, at the end of the 19th century and have to memorize all 34 planets. Um, but then they decided, all right, screw it. Um, most of them are asteroids, and they don't, we don't need to know. Um, so nevertheless, you can say, sure, they're discrete things that you can count. 
one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. But why, when you predict um, how um, a voltage is going to go across a circuit, do you have to use it's, here you're, you're not just counting something real, but you're solving an equation which uses imaginary numbers. So if you're solving that equation to figure out what electricity is going to do in a circuit, um, why or how does the universe solve that equation? How does the circuit solve the equation? How does the circuit know what to do with the electricity? What is the relationship of a fairly abstract mathematical description to the thing that it describes? Um, and if imaginary numbers are purely mental, why do they work to describe what's really going on in the universe? Um, so once again, people say, well, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll just name them imaginary numbers, and that's showing that we don't think they're really real. Um, but they have a name, so they can do stuff, so that's fine too. Um, so the history of thought is often the history of naming problems um, rather than either solving them or deciding um, that you're not going to have anything to do with them. Um, and that's a really interesting fact. So irrational numbers, that was one of the first named problems. Here is something that makes no sense. So we will take this senseless thing and use it, and use it according to um, very strict and particular laws of logic, and then it works. It's a placeholder, they work, and it's all good. Um, so prove their irrational numbers, and then um, prove that there is more than one order of infinity, which is something that we will start on Wednesday. Um, all right, so if you guys have a chance, I went uh, yesterday to Boston College, the Boston College McMullen Museum, uh, where there's a show that's about to close next Sunday. I think it is on Paul Clay, the great 20th century um, painter and um, graphic um, artist. And um, it's really pretty wonderful. And I'd never, I don't think I'd ever seen so many Paul Clays together before. Um, but it got me thinking about Clay, partly because of some of the signage they had there. Um, and about Paul Clay's famous statement, um, which I think is not in the signage there, where he defines a line. And he says, what a line is, does anyone know his definition of a line? It's a point taken out on a walk. So um, if you take a point for a walk, you get a line. Um, it's ah! <laughs> I'm there. Good. Um, and he also says, and I think this is a Kantian idea and something that um, you should have in mind, but this was, this was um, part of the signage. Um, space itself is a temporal concept, he wrote. When a point turns into, and here what he's talking about is looking at a painting or looking at a drawing, looking at a, at a design. Space, space itself is a temporal concept. When a point turns into movement and line, that takes time. Or when a line is displaced to form a plane. And the same is true of the movement of planes into spaces. So he says that if you even look at a Euclidean definition of space, um, that definition has a sort of Kantian aspect to it, which is although we see space spatially and we can um, tell the difference between um, something moving and something not moving, we nevertheless perceive space through motion. 
it is the fact that we can look at a point and then look at how that point can be extended into a line and that line extended into a plane that gives us our idea of space. So our idea of space, and this is Kant's view also, although he wouldn't have put it this way, our idea of space depends on a prior idea of movement, a more fundamental idea of movement. And then Clay, again, talking about pictures, which is what he did, writes, the pictorial work was born of movement, is itself recorded movement, and is assimilated through movement. That is through the movement of the eye muscles. So pictures, even still pictures, are born of movement, they are the record of movements, and they are assimilated through movement. Um, all of that is, as Clay certainly knew, um, a Kantian idea um, comes from Kant. Yeah? Sorry, but um, it, do you know, um, like, the, the exhibit sounds really interesting. Do you know how much it is, actually? How what? Like, how much money it is? It's free. Oh, really? Yeah. Seriously? It's at Boston College in the McMullen Museum, um, which is, if you go through, if you know where the Boston College Library is, um, well, if you go to BC, there's sort of like a main gate, which is not the main gate, but it's where it's prettiest. Um, and if you go in there, the library's to your left, and the McMullen Museum is, it's actually in the same building as the admissions office, so it's right, um, right past the library. Um, so yeah, and I think it's on until next Sunday. Um, okay, so where we were, what we were talking about last Wednesday... Um, was the idea, even the Pascalian idea, that you should will to have free will. Um, and you should will to have free will because then you can um, freely choose to treat others as ends rather than means. So now Kant writes a third critique. Um, this is the critique of judgment. And the critique of judgment is in two parts. Um, the critique of aesthetic judgment and the critique of teleological judgment. Um, some people are interested in the critique of teleological judgment, but not that many. Um, but the critique of aesthetic judgment, which is the first half of the critique of judgment, um, is really of crucial importance to everything Kant is doing. So in the critique of judgment, and, and this is our introduction to Mont Blanc, Kant is, in the critique of aesthetic judgment, Kant is interested in what it is that makes us find something beautiful or sublime. Those are two different things. And just to pause for a moment on the difference between them. Um, the idea of the beautiful and the idea of the sublime, although sometimes people will talk about things as being sublimely beautiful, um, in the 18th century, at the end of the 17th century and, and in the 18th century, lots of aesthetic theorists were interested in talking about the difference between them. So if you think of something beautiful, you could take as your gold standard for beautiful something like a perfect symmetrical flower. Um, a flower which is beautiful, which is still, which you can contemplate, um, whose symmetry, whose smoothness, whose um, harmoniousness is um, something that presents itself to you um, and presents itself to the viewer um, right there 
right um, um, with a kind of serene transparency. Um, so the general idea at what people saw in the 18th century and argued was that beauty and, and harmoniousness tended to go together. Um, that when we talked about something that was beautiful, we also talked about it as harmonious. And the idea of something beautiful being harmonious um, gave a certain kind of pleasure, the pleasure that you take in the beautiful. There's another kind of aesthetic pleasure that you take. This is all about nature, but Kant is going to um, apply this to art. Um, there's another kind of aesthetic pleasure that you take, which is not the pleasure in the harmonious, but the pleasure in the overwhelming. And that is that in the 18th century was called the sublime. So the sublime is when you go to the Grand Canyon and you look down for the first time into the Grand Canyon and you cannot believe what you're seeing and you cannot believe what that drop is and you cannot believe how overwhelming it is. Um, the sublime has an element of fear in it and that was really crucial to the 18th century theorists that the sublime could fill you with fear. The beauty tended to, beautiful tended to make you calm, and the sublime tended to make you um, feel overwhelmed and fearful, but also exalted. So the beautiful tends to go with the harmonious and the calming, and the sublime tends to go with the exalting and with, with um, a kind of rush, an overwhelming rush which um, takes some time to orient yourself with respect to. Um, for beauty, you look at clouds in the sky, uh, um, or you look at flowers on a summer's day, or you look at um, serene ponds. For the sublime, you go to storms. Um, you go to um, the Swiss Alps. You go to things that are overwhelming. And um, there was a pretty clear and, I think, correct distinction made in the 18th century between those two different kinds of aesthetic um, response, response to the beautiful, response to the sublime. And Kant accepts that distinction. Um, for him, those are the two crucial aesthetic responses that you can have, um, both to nature and to a work of art. Um, now... The important thing about aesthetic judgment for Kant, this we started talking about, but the important thing about aesthetic judgment for Kant is that when you find something beautiful, the difference between the beautiful and, let's say, the agreeable, which is one of Kant's terms, the difference between the beautiful and different kinds of pleasure that objects can give you is that the beautiful gives you a pleasure that doesn't um, seem to have any purpose. The beautiful gives you a pleasure that isn't in any way connected with stuff that you want or need as a being who, as a human being, um, the way you live your life is negotiating your wants and your needs and the things that you have to stay away from. But the beautiful isn't offering you that. It's not offering anything beyond itself. It's not offering itself to you as an instrument to something. 
beyond itself. So Kant says that the pleasure we take in the beautiful is what he calls a disinterested pleasure. And he will describe it also as a purely formal pleasure. It's a pleasure that we take in something's form, in the form that something has, rather, you could say, than in its content. Um, so that pleasure is one which doesn't matter to our lives. The pleasure of the beautiful doesn't matter to anything that we're involved in or anything that we're doing. It's not, that's not to say that the, that the beautiful doesn't ha won't matter to you. It just doesn't matter that it matters to you. Now, Kant is interested in the beautiful because what he sees there is something like your mind judging that something is beautiful by looking at it and by putting it together the way we put together everything that we perceive in space and in time, putting it together in various ways, but not putting it together for any purpose. So when you see something beautiful and its harmoniousness strikes you, for Kant, this means that what happens when you see the beautiful is that your mind kind of idles. It goes into neutral. And going into neutral, um, it perceives a harmony without that harmony being directed towards anything outside itself. And in that sense, you could say that we have something like a pure experience of causality. That is, in perceiving the beautiful, what we're doing is putting things together for their own sake. And in fact, he goes farther and he says, what they do is they put themselves together in our minds. Beautiful things put themselves together in our minds. The sublime, on the other hand, we have a completely different reaction to. The reaction that we have to the sublime is one initially of being overwhelmed and of fear. And for Kant, what happens is there's nevertheless a kind of pleasure, or the word that Edmund Burke uses is the word delight, in looking at the sublime. And here you'll see what this has to do with this course. The pleasure or the delight in the sublime is that we are confronted with something that overwhelms our capacity to take it in. That, for Kant, is the hallmark of the sublime. That you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look over the edge. How many people have done that? Well, okay, if you've ever had the experience of being blown away by something in nature, what happens is precisely that, that you're blown away by it. That you see something which exceeds your mind's capacity to think it. That's what it means to be blown away by it. You see something, and you think, OK, I'm ready for this. And then you look at it, and it turned out you weren't ready. It turned out it was so amazing that all you can do is be stunned by what you're seeing. So the question that Kant asks, he's not the first to ask it, but um, he's the first to give the answer that he gives, is what is the pleasure that we take in being stunned? What is the pleasure that we take in being blown away by something? Yeah. Um, I know you were saying in the last class that all 
psychology you had to read Kant, you were talking about psychoanalysts with Freud and the and Eros, the death drive, and that that whole idea in that school of psychological thought. Um, mm -hmm. Can you say that somehow also ties into that idea? Well, Freud certainly said so. Yeah. Um, it's not, that's not how Kant is going to do it, no, but, but Freud is asking the, is asking the very same question, and you could, you could argue that Freud's view of repetition and the death drive is attempting to give something like a Kantian answer. Um, so, yeah, there is, it is related to what Freud has to say about the death drive. It does apply to a lot of forensic psychology, but in a different way, but it, it does fit with no, I agree with you. Um, I totally agree. But here again, let the question, as with Zeno, let the question be the, the one that should really, really um, be, um, be what, what gets you thinking, which is it may make sense, it does make sense, to say that um, things that are harmonious will give us pleasure. Um, and... The simplest way of saying this, why does harmony give you pleasure and dissonance not, for example? Why, to return to, um, to music, um, why is playing a C and a G the sweetest sound that you can play, um, especially if you have um, natural tempering? Um, why um, does the harmony of two notes or of three notes in a chord when they're harmonious, why does that give you pleasure? Whereas why, if you play dissonant notes, um, doesn't give you as much pleasure? Um, why does looking at a perfectly symmetrical flower give you pleasure, but looking at a flower that's blighted in some way, so half of, it half of it's distorted, why does that give less pleasure? You can see that those are interesting questions if you ask them, but you can also see that there um, is at least one obvious answer that you can give right away, which is that it requires less mental processing to look at something harmonious than something not harmonious. It's harder, pure and simple harder work to look at things that are unharmonious. One thing that harmony does for you is it's restful. The word we use for that is serene. But one thing that it does for you, this could be just a minimalist answer, but one thing that it does for you is it makes less demands on your mental attention and energy and mental powers. And Kant actually is saying that, um, that your mind functions most smoothly comes up against the least friction when it is contemplating something harmonious. That contemplation of what is harmonious allows your mind to function without stress. It's a stress buster. It's a stress reducer. Um, that's you know all just, just a very, very um, banal way of putting it, but it is in, um, in harmony with Kant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And relating it to what's divine, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's there's less of a of a um, disconnect, less of less stress between you and it. Um, so for Kant, um, you can put that entirely within the empirical world. Um, that is, that what we know from the beautiful, and this is, you know, you, you can say this goes back to Pythagoras. What we know from the beautiful is that there's a way where, we're, where we can check whether we're well-tuned or not. Um, and we're well-tuned, our minds are well-tuned if they can perceive something beautiful as beautiful. It just means that things in our mind are, fun are, are um, um, interacting easily and without stress with each other. Um, and that, for Kant, is an important feature of what the beautiful can show you, which is how, how the beautiful can get your mind operating, but in a low-key, stress-free way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That is that a perfect circle or something is so what? So um, this is. Well, you know the famous story about Giotto. The circle tool. Giotto very famously was. Um, in order to get the commission. Abby. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, what. Yeah, so Kant is actually says that. That is that it's the experience of things falling into place. And what happens when things fall into place is, um, and this is actually one of the ways that it's related to the concept of causality, is when things fall into place, it's as though the thing you're seeing is causing it. You can stop working at it. The causality is no longer coming out of your own effort, but it's the object itself is taking over putting things, making things fall into place and making the parts of your mind that generally do the work of getting things to fall into place, the beautiful object does that for you, makes the stuff in your mind fall into place as well. Yeah. Well, Descartes said that too. There's like an argument for his vague, clear, distinct ideas um, concept as being that sort of like aha moment when you see that a mass, you know, that an algorithm yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that that's absolutely right. And Kant, you could say, is defending that. Um, but the but what's important for Kant about the way to defend about the way he's defending it is that the causality then doesn't come from the mind, but it comes from the object. Um, and um, the object itself allows the mind to stop doing the work 
that it was doing before, and that's the concept of uh, serenity or peace. That has nothing to do with infinity, but it does have to do with judgment. But now Kant says, okay, this makes sense for the beautiful. It explains, for example, why symmetry is so often regarded as essential to beauty. Um, why the idea of the symmetrical um, and the predictable are so often, and the smooth and various other things are so often connected to beauty. But now he says there's this other aesthetic experience, which is very, very different, massively different, which is the experience of being overwhelmed. So if aesthetic pleasure takes the form of not having to do, of suddenly being able to find um, you're relieved of mental work, you can just allow this thing to happen to you. What's the aesthetic pleasure, and is aesthetic pleasure the right terminology to use anyhow, when you're blown away by something? When something is just so amazing that you think, God, I can't even think this. And so Kant, I mean, just to tell you again, because partly this has been a, a course about this, um, Kant distinguishes two types of sublime, the mathematical sublime and the dynamic sublime. And by the mathematical sublime, he just means something is so big, is so much greater in extent to anything that you can think that you're blown away by it. And his example is going to St. Peter's in Rome. Has anyone done that? So the first time, well, if you ever do, um, <clears throat> The first time you go into St. Peter's, what happens is you go into this building and, you know, it's a basilica. It's not actually a cathedral, although it's frequently called a cathedral. Um, it's a basilica. And what do you do in a cathedral or basilica? You look at the ceiling. Of course you do. You want to get a sense of the archi architectural space. So in St. Peter's, you look up to the ceiling and you look up and you look up and you look up and you're not getting there. And you keep trying to somehow prepare yourself for how big it is, and you can't. And when you finally see it, by the time you finally say, holy cats, or holy God is what you're really supposed to say, um, there it is. By then, you're completely overwhelmed by it. You've, you've been, as it were, crushed by the space itself, by the vastness, by the magnitude of where you are. Same deal with the Grand Canyon, same deal with various mountains. It's just like... You can't believe it. So Kant describes that as the mathematical sublime. That is that you see something, but it turns out that there's more. And, you, and so you try to look at the more that's there, and it turns out there's more still. And you look at the more still, and there's more still. And what happens is you apprehend, this is Kant's terminology, you apprehend more and more and more and more and more. I can't believe how big this is. And finally, your apprehension floods and overwhelms your power of comprehension. And that fills you with vertigo and leaves you stunned and unable to take in what you're seeing. And that, for Kant, is what he calls the mathematical sublime because that's followed by a kind of recoil or reaction in the mind which is the mind goes from looking at things and trying to take in more and more and more and more to taking in everything. That is, for Kant, the human mind has a power 
to rise to the infinite when it is overwhelmed by the large but finite. This is also platonic, you could say, or neoplatonic. That is to say that as empirical beings, this is Kant's terminology again, as empirical beings, we, and this is also in Pascal, we are just reeds. We are surrounded by infinite spaces, or at least by extremely large spaces that can overwhelm us and crush us. We are the weakest things in nature. And yet, our minds, when we contemplate how large the world is, how large the universe is, how small we are, our minds can be compressed into a feeling of our own littleness and then suddenly measure that littleness by our capacity to transcend the finite and go to the infinite. So we go, we can't think of, we can't see more than seven objects at a time without starting to count. But someone gives us a thousand objects and we're not overwhelmed because we can think much larger numbers than that. We can think about the infinite. And so even though as finite beings, we're pretty small finite beings, in our minds or in our souls is the capacity to jump to the infinite. And that jump to the infinite for Kant is the experience of the sublime. We are overwhelmed by the finite, and then we come rushing back when we jump into our capacity to think the infinite. He calls it absolute magnitude. That is, that relative magnitude overwhelms us more and more and more and more but then we jump to the absolute. And we become aware, <coughs> excuse me, again to use his language, of the absolute as our destiny, what he calls our supersensible destiny. That's where we really belong. That's what really matters. The dynamic sublime, then, um, has something of the same form, but it's not more and more and more. It's rather more, more and more and more powerful not things that are so big that we feel like nothing compared to them, but things that are so powerful that as empirical beings they can annihilate us. And yet, we can push back against our own annihilation by thinking of ourselves as having access to a vision of absolute power. Yeah, Ken. Yeah. Um, so how does he separate the sensation of the dynamic sublime from the, you said the static sublime? No, the mathematical the sublime. Mathematical, okay. Um, so how, how does he separate those two if, if, we, if we conflate bigness and power so deeply in our ways of thinking? Yeah, um, what he's trying to do is um, conceptually distinguish between two things. Um, that in fact tend to come together. So the So what he needs to do for the whole critical project is to talk about um, our mathematical intuitions of magnitude, and which goes with the critique of pure reason, 
That is, that has something to do with the structure of space and of time. That time goes on for a long time and space is very wide. And then our sense of ourselves as having power um, against which empirical power is nothing. And that has to go with the critique of practical reason. That is, so the mathematical sublime addresses our understanding and, the, um, and overwhelms it. Um, but then our understanding snaps back into, um, into an understanding of the whole. The dynamic sublime overwhelms our will, what we can do against a world that can crush us, what we can resist um, in our own actions against a world that can crush us. And then again, we come charging back exalted with a sense of a super sensible will. Um, so somehow we take in you know, again, think of your own experience of the sublime. You take in something that makes you feel very little. And somehow that you go from feeling very little to feeling like this extraordinary exaltation and grandeur in one step. So how is it that perceiving what makes you, what, what is so overwhelmingly bigger than you, can reverse into a sense of your own exaltation. That is the dynamic or the structure um, or the experience that Kant is talking about. Um, Burke, whom Kant, Edmund Burke, uh, who wrote the great English treatise on the sublime and the beautiful, which Kant is partly responding to, um, distinguishes there between um, pleasure and delight. And what he says is the beautiful gives you a sense of pleasure. You look, at, you look at the beautiful and it's pleasurable. You look at the sublime and it scares you. And the result is that you have a very deeply negative feeling, says Burke. But then you realize that you're actually safe. You're at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you could die. You could fall into nothingness. You could fall into an abyss where you wouldn't even, your death, your, your splatting on the bottom of the Grand Canyon wouldn't even be seen by other people on the edge. You would be so sucked into nothingness if you um, fell over the edge. But then you don't, and you realize, wait, it looked dangerous. There's danger here, but I am a step away from that danger. And Burke says, and what you then have is an experience not of pleasure but of delight, which is that this intensely negative experience is lifted. And you think, I could die, but I don't. And the structure is sort of like bungee jumping. That is, that emotionally, it's as though you go plunging into the abyss, at least in your mind. But then you bounce back. And the experience of bouncing back that's what Burke calls delight. And he says that delight is, its absolute value is much greater than pleasure. Pleasure is just, oh, nice flower. Uh, and you go up a little bit when you see a nice flower, and that's all good. But, eh. Um, but delight is, oh, my God, Grand Canyon. Ah, but I'm back. And you've gone, you've, the, the experience of bouncing back has covered so much more affective space than the experience of seeing something that's beautiful, that the sublime is a much greater experience even though it's a negative one. Yeah? It's kind of like the belief that watching a horror movie is kind of like an arousing thing. Well, not in the sense that you enjoy 
the horror that's happening, yeah. then you've got some serious issues. Yes. Um, but that the the suspense and the apprehension and the waiting and not knowing what's going to happen and that fear because you feel like you're in it, um, in and of itself is kind of like sublime in a way. Yeah, and also then being it you you're being safe. You're being almost there, but then not. That is the constant sense that, oh my God, and yet this isn't happening. So there are a lot of people who um, write about horror, especially in horror movies, but also in horror fiction, who relate it to the sublime. Um, sorry? Men, Women, and Chainsaws, the book? No. The book by Carol J. Clover about exploitation horror films. Oh, no, I don't know. It's really good. We read it in, um, we read the chapter of it, but then I finished it. In um, Kalikian's film class, uh-huh. the, the one where he was just producer. Yeah. Oh, cool. Damon. Neat. So, yeah, there's also a book by Noel Carroll called The Philosophy of Horror, um, which talks about some of these things, uh, about horror movies. But the idea of gothic novels are often, they tend to um, take place in sublime landscapes. Or if you've read Frankenstein, um, Frankenstein is very much um, a book which is about the relation of horror to the sublime. Um, The monster is both a horrifying and a sublime being in Frankenstein. Okay, so the author of Frankenstein is Mary Shelley. Her husband, Percy Shelley, wrote this little poem, Mont Blanc, which you all printed out, right, and brought with you. Okay, if you have it digitally, get it out digitally. And um, as we read this poem, you should be thinking a bit about the Dickinson, the brain is wider than the sky. Are we locked in? Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> See, you almost had it open, and it was just one more tiny push would do it. Yeah, but there are bears out there. <laughs> As long as we're in here. Okay. Um, So Shelley in um, 1819, 1816 I guess it was, um, was on a walking tour actually with Mary Shelley. Um, How many people have read Frankenstein? Um, So if you have, you will know that um, Victor Frankenstein... um, basically manages to discover the monster when he goes to visit Mont Blanc and they have a conversation there. Um, The description that Mary Shelley gives of Mont Blanc um, comes from the same trip that um, she took with Percy Shelley um, when they were traveling through France and Italy. Um, So Percy Shelley writes this poem, and it really is very much a poem about the sublime, a highly philosophical and really amazing poem, and we will go through it um, today and possibly um, on Wednesday as well. Um, We'll go through it fairly quickly, but it's still worth going through line by line. So he begins with a philosophical statement. Um, We know from the title that these lines are written in the valley, the Vale of Chamonix, um, from which he is looking up at the mountain. And he now makes a philosophical statement. The everlasting universe of things 
flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor, where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters with a sound but half its own, such as a feeble brook will oft assume in the wild woods among the mountains lone, where waterfalls around it leap forever, where woods and winds contend, and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. So that's a philosophical statement. Um, you may think that he's describing Mont Blanc, but technically he isn't. What he's saying is that there is a mind and a universe outside that mind. And the universe which the mind perceives, the mind's perception of that universe is that somehow a stream of information, a stream of data, a stream of sensory perception comes from the universe and goes through the mind. And what enters into our minds is a reflection of an internalization of the universe that's outside of us. So there is this everlasting universe, the universe of things. But that universe flows through the mind of all human beings that perceive it. Individually, it flows through the minds of all human beings that perceive it. Think again of this as a kind of Kantian idea flows the way the boat would flow down river in the perception of the boat in Kant. But it's the everlasting universe of things. It's not really moving. It is what lasts forever. It's the outside world. But the way the mind takes it in, we take it in through motion. That's the idea in Paul Clay as well. And as it enters through the mind, it affects the mind. It rolls its waves. So the universe comes through the mind and rolls its waves as it does. And it's sometimes dark and it sometimes glitters. And it sometimes reflects the gloom, the darkness in the human mind. And it sometimes lends its own splendor to the human mind. And human thought, like a tributary stream, adds to what we perceive, but the main thing that goes through our minds is the outside world. That's what this stanza is saying. The mind is like a landscape in which a gigantic river, the river of reality, is flowing. And the mind contributes a little bit to that because it's a landscape and because it has its own thoughts, its own sources, its own brooks. But the main thing that goes through the mind is the river of the universe, the river of reality. So the first thing to notice is that what gets him to make this philosophical claim, which, whose meaning has nothing to do with where he is, but nevertheless what prompts this philosophical speculation in his mind, is where he is. He looks around at this river, the Arve River, 
which comes crashing down from the heights of the glaciers on top of Mont Blanc and goes crashing down through a ravine until eventually it will um, feed Lake Geneva. And he looks at this, and it goes charging through his mind as well. The very scene that he's looking at goes charging through his mind. And so he writes a stanza about how much the mind is affected by the reality around it how most of what's in our minds doesn't come from us, but comes from an outside world which is much larger than us. And he proves it. Here's this outside world. This river crashing by him, roaring by him in tumult and power. And then a couple of brooks elsewhere and some trees. And he thinks that he's looking at, it, looking at something which describes exactly how his mind works. And the fact that he thinks that proves it. That he looks at this and says, it looks like the picture of the mind. Now I understand the mind. It comes from outside. And that thought comes from outside. Because he's looking at the landscape and thinking that's a good image. However, the second thing then to notice about that stanza is that he looks at the outside world and says, that's an image of the mind. So on the one hand, the outside world is giving him his image of the mind. And on the other hand, he's saying the outside world is an image of the mind. So the question that this first stanza raises and that the entire poem is going to be about is, the question that Kant raises in, the in his analytic of the sublime, as it's called, which is, which is greater, the world or the mind? Which has priority, the brain or the sky? Which is larger, which is more powerful, which is closer? to infinity. Amanda. Um, so you could say that. The question is, um, how long can you say it? And that's the question he's going to raise in this poem. So let's get back to that in a minute. Yeah. Two things. Well, I think I forgot the first thing, so probably one thing. I, but I think what her point makes would suggest that the world is, takes priority, that the outside takes priority, because then she's saying that, that we have different minds. We're seeing basically the same thing, minus the letter. Mm -hmm. It would sound like the... So a way to put this is to say, on the one hand, and we've all had this experience, um, on the one hand, everything that we perceive has to come in through our senses. And so that everything we perceive is finally what we're capable of perceiving. 
And what we're capable of perceiving is what's within us and not what's outside of us. William James, in talking about willpower, actually, um, he has a chapter on whether the concept of the weakness of the will makes sense. Um, is there such a thing as having a weak will? Um, what is it that happens when people can't control themselves? And he says there are two possible images you can have. You can think of the um, rational mind as a coachman who is, um, who is um, driving a coach which has some horses pulling it. And the horses could be the thing the coachman is trying to control. And in some cases, the coachman doesn't control the horses. And there are two ways you can think of that. One is that the horses might be so powerful that no coachman could control them. Or the other is the coachman might be so weak that even the most domestic and easygoing horses will have their way over him. He won't even be able to control them. So the question is, when you see the world, you can think, you can say, well, everything in the world only comes through the mind. And therefore, there's nothing that the mind can control, can't control, if it really tries to. Or the world is so overwhelming that the mind is utterly flooded by it and can't control it at all. The question is, where is the power to make sense of the world? Where does that reside? Yeah. Yeah, but then there are going to be cases where um, this, is, this is actually something that happens in various um, arguments, modern arguments against skepticism. There are going to be cases where you're going to confront things in life, in reality, um, in horror, in war, um, where it will just feel so utterly wrong to say, to think, that this is just something going on in your own mind. There'll be cases where reality so overwhelms anything that you could have expected that you will have to give reality its due. And it's just part of the rhythm of human experience in life that sometimes we will think the world is what it seems to us to be because of who we are. That is... Um, we see the world, each person sees the world in their own way. And um, the world is like an ink blot, a Rorschach blot. And every person sees it in their own way. Um, and the way they see it tells you something about the seer. And then there'll be other cases where you'll just confront a reality so overwhelming that it'll just seem morally wrong to think that it's a creation of the mind. Now, Shelley is, in this poem, what he's doing. I mean, I, I think in various moods you can get yourself into either mood. To think that what you're seeing comes, that beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and what you're seeing comes from your own mind. Or to think, no, this is a reality which is so much greater than anything I could have come up with that it would simply be absurd for me to say, oh, yeah, this is a creation of my mind also. 
one argument against solipsism is that it's simply self-blinding. That is, that if you deny certain things as really existing, all you're doing is turning away from them because you can't really possibly deny it. But at any rate, this poem is about this issue. So notice how in the first stanza, he sets it up so that on the one hand, he sees a natural scene, and that is what directs his thought. That is what directs how he thinks. Roland Barthes, do people know who he is? Um, sort of? Is that a sort of? Your hand is sort of up? No, <laughs> that's John Barth. Um, it's an interesting juxtaposition, though. Um, Roland Barthes is a French uh, critic and philosopher of literature um, who wrote a great book called On Photography. He died when? About 30 years ago, I guess. Um, but one of the major figures in um, post-war French criticism. Um, and in the book on photography, he has a kind of Zen parallel, which is that Marpa, um, a Zen teacher, um, taught that all was illusion. Um, that was his, um, that everything is Maya, illusion, that there is no reality, um, but that all things are illusion. And then his son died, and he wept and mourned uncontrollably. And one of his disciples said to him, why are you weeping? You've taught us that all is illusion. And he said, and he replied, um, all is illusion, but my son was a super illusion. And so the point is, it's all well and good. I mean, this is an example of the sort of rhythm I'm talking about which is that it's all well and good to think that you can know the world as illusion, that you can get yourself into a frame of mind where you just say, it's all illusion. Um, let all things pass away. Everything's illusion anyhow. There's no such thing as reality. But then reality will come, and you won't be able to think it as illusion. And that's what Kant is talking about as well. He's talking about the other way the other rhythm, which Shelley is too, which is to look at reality and finally defeat it by saying, no, even reality, even in its grandeur, is nothing compared to the perceiving mind. But there is, it is human experience. This is a psychological claim that I'm making now, not an experimental psychological claim, but a human psychology claim. It is human experience sometimes to treat the world as for us, as something that is just there in the theater of our minds, and sometimes to be aware that we are nothing compared to the world, that the world is not for us, and at best, we may be something for the world. And that experience of, again, it's an experience that art will often give you, but that life will certainly give you, of having to get serious, of having to take reality seriously. That's part of the rhythm of our lives when we suddenly 
have to give up the fantasies that we're engaged in, not permanently, but whatever fantasy life we're engaged in um, for the last day or hour or week or month, and have to cope with reality and have to understand that it's real. And then sometimes what we can do when we're coping with reality is realize that no, the human being, myself, as an end in myself, others as ends in themselves, are greater and more important than reality, than empirical reality. You will catch yourself doing this, even if you don't, um, even if I'm not expressing myself that clearly right now, this is simply a fact about what it means to suddenly have to become serious about the world or to suddenly be able to dismiss the world that you'd been too serious about. And that's what Shelley is writing about. So stanza one, what we get is a landscape that reminds his mind of the mind. And the question is, does the landscape remind his mind of the structure of the mind because the landscape determines the metaphors and images by which we will even think of our own minds? Or is it that he looks at a landscape and because it's his mind that's doing the looking, he says, oh, look, that landscape is an image for what really matters, my mind. So what's going on here is the Humpty Dumpty question, but 50 years before Humpty Dumpty, which is, which is to be master? You know that that's what Humpty Dumpty says to Alice. Alice says, can you make words mean whatever you want them to mean? And Humpty Dumpty says, the question is, which is to be master? That is all. That is the words or the person using them. So here, the question is, which is to be master, the mind or reality? And the first stanza raises that question without answering it. Then we get to stanza two, and what we get is a thus. So now we're going to look at the real ravine of the Arve River. Here, roaring down from the glaciers around Mont Blanc. Thus thou ravine of Arve. And the thus doesn't get picked up until line 19. Thus thou dost lie, thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging. So you, ravine of Arve, are like the ravine through which the everlasting universe of things flows. So that's what he wants to say. He's addressing the landscape around him, and he's saying, you're a good image of the mind. That's the structure of the sentence. Thus thou art a good image of the mind. That's what he wants to say. But as he tries to say it, the landscape hijacks his description of it. He wants to say something simple. You're a good image of the mind. But something else happens. Thus thou ravine of Arve. And then that's not enough to say. So he goes on. Dark, deep ravine, thou many-colored, many-voiced vale, over whose pines and crags and caverns sail fast cloud shadows and sunbeams, awful scene where power in likeness of the arve comes down from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. He couldn't have made that up without seeing it. That description 
of the mountain, that extraordinary description of what he's seeing, from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. He had to see that to be able to describe it. He couldn't have dreamt that up. He's trying to say you're an image of the mind, but as soon as he tries to say that, the image takes over the mind that it's supposed to be an image of. He recovers. He insists on his sentence, thou dost lie. But then the description takes over again. Thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging, children of elder time, in whose devotion the chainless winds still come and ever came to drink their odors and their mighty swinging to hear. An old and solemn harmony, thine earthly rainbow stretched across the sweep of the ethereal waterfall, whose veil robes some unsculptured image, the strange sleep with which which, when the voices of the desert fail, wraps all in its deep eternity. Thy caverns echoing to the arv's commotion, a loud, lone sound no other sound can tame. Thou art pervaded with that ceaseless motion. Thou art the path of that unresting sound, dizzy ravine. So he's trying to say, here's a good image of the mind, but the image takes over the mind that's trying to use it. The whole poem, we'll go on with this on Wednesday, but the whole poem is the mind trying to control the mountain and failing, and the mountain continuously being forcing the mind to yet greater descriptions because the mind couldn't have done it without the experience of the mountain. You couldn't make Mont Blanc up. That's what he keeps seeing and understanding. And every time he tries to say, good, got it, good image for the mind, now I'm going to talk about the mind, the mountain says, no, I transcend that, I'm beyond it. So this poem is a really intense competition between mind and mountain for which is to be master of human perception, of human experience. All right, uh, finish the poem if you haven't yet. And bring in a printout um, of it on Wednesday. Sorry? Yeah, pick them up. They're in alphabetical order.